Welcome to the IP Gurus Podcast, helping you to understand intellectual property by discussing topics important to entrepreneurs, businesses, and IP attorneys. Here is your host, Mark McLean. Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome to the IP Gurus Podcast. My name is Mark McLean. I'm a patent attorney, and I'm here to shed some light on the sometimes confusing and crazy world of intellectual property. So, being as this is the inaugural episode, I should take a moment to explain what type of show we are. The IEP Gurus podcast is a podcast that will talk with different intellectual property lawyers and experts and dive into a different topic each week. Each interview is roughly 20 to 25 minutes long, and in future episodes we may also end the show with a few news stories from the patent world. We will release episodes every month to start, but we may increase to a bi-weekly format if there becomes an interest. This show is geared for an audience of young and upcoming patent attorneys who want to learn more about the field, as well as business people, business owners, entrepreneurs, or basically anyone that may have some intellectual property questions. For the first show, I wanted to discuss one of the most confusing topics for business people here in the US, foreign filings, or how and when to file for a patent anywhere else in the world besides the United States. To talk about this subject, I sat down with William Wilbar of Klein, O'Neill & Singh, LLP of Irvine, California in Orange County. Will has over 20 years of experience focused on the drafting and prosecution of patents. He has worked with companies in a wide variety of technologies and of various sizes, including small startups and multinational corporations. He has counseled clients on patent portfolio strategy, both domestically in the US and worldwide, even while living overseas. So without further ado, let's sit down with Will and pick his brain on what you should know about foreign filings. Again, thanks for joining us. And, you know, I guess just to just to start off, you know, as a business person, why why would you want to patent anything in countries other than the United States? Well, you know, there's really two reasons that you you would patent anywhere else outside of the United States. And one would be that's where your market is. And two, it would be where you're manufacturing whatever product you have. Um, there are some exceptions, like um, if you look at software, a lot of times uh, web-provided service, you also want patents in place where the servers are, because that's likely where the infringement is actually occurring. Yeah, I think it's important that you just mentioned like, where the infringement is occurring, because I, I, you know, I had a client um, come to me the other day and kind of just ask, informally like hey you know I've got this patent in the US someone's kind of I think someone's making this in Germany can we go sue them you know if you had a client come and say say that to you what would you tell them well I would tell them you know we I would look first of all where we are if they have a patent already they've Mm -hmm. given up the foreign game on that yeah patent Um, you know you would tell them well what we need to do now is look at that company and are they importing it into the US Mm-hmm. Um, because, as you know, in most countries, the, the rule's all the same. Infringement is make, use, or selling of the patented product. Yeah, and I, I think it's important to, to let a lot of business people know, like, the, the U.S. patent isn't the be-all, end-all, and the patents are territorial in nature. You know, if you get a patent in the U.S., that's just Correct. good in the U.S., if you want to get a patent that covers Germany, you've got to get a patent in Germany. Yeah, and, and that's why I said, you know, you really need to look at, um, one, where your market is, and two, where you're manufacturing or doing mm-hmm. um, most of your patented um, subject matter because that's where the infringement's going to incur. Um, you know, and the biggest thing, like with manufacturing, it, it's not going to be other people making it. 
it's going to be the guy that you've hired to make up for you or at your factory running the machines <laughs> at night and selling that product to, to competitors. Yeah, I think we've all heard the horror stories of companies, you know, going to get a, a price quote of something to get manufactured in China. You send them the molds, and all of a sudden, you see the same your same product on. Alibaba or Amazon or something like that at a cut rate price that you just can't compete with. Yeah, you know, and the, this is a big problem. So, you know, before you go outside of the U.S., you really should be looking at, um, one, can I patent there? And two, you know, is it going to be worth it? Um, you know, am I going to be actually able to stop these guys? Um, because there are some countries where even if you get an infringement or you get a patent, mm -hmm. Getting the proving the infringement and then enforcing the um, ban are impossible anyway. So yeah, yeah. So as a business person, when would you ideally want to start thinking about this process of like who else could be doing it in other countries? What other markets might this be infringed in? Well, I mean, ideally, you're looking at it before you even start the whole patenting process on a product. Um, you, as you know, in the U.S., we have the um, grace period that we can file it. We have, after selling, we have um, a year grace period mm -hmm. to file. Um, in a lot of other countries, you don't have that grace period. And once you've sold it anywhere in the world, it's become a public disclosure. And now it's you have made prior art against your own material. And so you're not gonna get a patent. So, and that means it's not just selling, right? Because it's yeah. like, it's, if it's publicly disclosed. Publicly. You know, you, you'd go to a trade show, you put in a commercial publication. I you mean, make a pitch to investors. Um, yeah. That can even be considered a public disclosure. Yeah, and I think a lot, there's so many clients that I come across, especially newer clients to the IP field that just don't have this idea of like, you know, the US system, you get this year grace period, but there are, and some big countries where like, as soon as you, it's public, you lo you've lost it. You know, and, that's why you want to make your clients aware as soon as you can in the process. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of startups basically have to give up their first generation products because they came to the to the IP market <laughs> yeah. a little late. You know, they they're like, "Oh, we're about to go to market. We need to get a patent in place." Yeah. Well, at that point, it's too late because they've already disclosed this to inventors, to um, manufacturers. Um, you know, and a lot of it without um, non-disclosure agreements in place. Um, the biggest thing that you can tell these um, potential clients uh, that are in a startup or a, a very new business is anytime you're disclosing it before you've done any IP work, try and get non-disclosures in place. Mm -hmm. um, that should offer you some protection or at least it can be made, you can make you can, an argument. Yeah, you could try to say like, hey, we were trying to keep this under wraps at least. So, you know, if someone's trying to invalidate it later on, you could just say, you know. Yeah, yeah. you know, and that, that goes for the U.S. as well. But mm -hmm. in the foreign game where there is no grace period again, um, it becomes vital. Okay. So once you sufficiently scared your clients <laughs> and telling them, okay, we need to start looking at the foreign process early and start you know, and they decided they want to be aggressive and they want to start filing other countries. What's the general process that you use to start filing in foreign countries? Well, you know, the the first thing that you're going to want to do is um, look at one year from your priority date, whether it's a provisional patent application in the U.S. or a full utility application in the U.S., you have one year from that priority date 
to either file on Paris Convention directly in other countries, or you can go the Patent Cooperation Treaty Route, PCT. So just for listeners who might not understand all of the terms of art here, let's break that down for a second. We've got a priority date, which um, in general terms, what would you say to somebody who had no idea what patents were, what, what do you mean a by priority, priority date? priority date is going to be your first filing with any patent office anywhere mm-hmm. in the world. So basically the earliest date you're announcing to the world, I want a patent on this. Correct. Okay. So, and then you you mentioned that you've got provisionals and non-provisional applications. What, what, what's the difference between those? Well, a provisional application, especially in the U.S., is generally mm-hmm. a just a document that you put in that kind of discloses the whole invention as it is. It's very informal. It doesn't require um, claims. It doesn't require drawings, although if you want to get later on in litigation, mm-hmm. <laughs> the drawings are usually essential. Yeah. But, but the... The gist of it is is that there is no real requirements in the filing, so you can file almost anything, and you can put these together rather quickly, and that's why a lot of times you'll mm-hmm. use the provisional application. So, and that's like a placeholder for, a, for say, I'm going to file a more complete patent application in the future. Correct. You yeah. get one year from the date that you file that to file your utility application. Okay. And, and I'm sure we're going to go into provisional applications in depth in a future podcast, so we won't go too far further down in the details on that. But the last thing I wanted is to clarify for anybody who might not understand, the when you say the Paris and the PCT, um, can you give like a brief uh, explanation of what those yeah. are? Um, the Paris Convention is a little older treaty between countries that allowed them to say, okay, when you file for a patent in my country, I'm going to honor the filing date if you file in my country within one year from the date that you filed in your original country. And the PCT is kind of like a bigger... More yeah. you know, version of that same idea? The PCT is a bigger version of that idea, but it kind of goes a step further saying, well, what we're going to do is we're going to allow you to kind of have a mini prosecution before you go into all of these countries. And the PCT is, I think currently there's about 183 signatories. Um, the only countries of real consequence to um, that aren't PCT members are Taiwan, mm-hmm. And um, Uganda, I think. Um, okay. There really other country. Most other countries in the world are part of PCT, mm-hmm. and so filing there is um, just as good as filing directly into um, with Paris Convention directly into those countries. The difference is now you're going to be able to delay those costs of the individual filings in every countries out even mm-hmm. further than um, that one year date that you had with the Paris Convention. So not only do you have some time money savings, you know, by doing the PCT, mm-hmm. you also have the ability of like, you know, if you've got an invention, you want to get, you know, more investors on board, or maybe you want to figure out, we're going to send this to market, and it's, maybe it's not going to work out, we're not going to spend the costs on it. Well, the other thing is, if you, if your product really isn't developed yet, or your markets, I should say mm-hmm. more correctly, aren't developed yet, what PCT does is it allows you to wait 30 months. So now you can see how those markets are developing and where are the major um, areas of the world that mm. that you've caught on. And then you can concentrate your IP dollars in those areas. So once you file that, that initial application of the PCT system after 30 months, then basically out of the 183 signatories, you can pick which ones you want to actually 
go to the next stage with. Correct. And you actually and you do have to do one with every single. Every um, country where yeah. you're going to want a patent, you will have to enter what they call national stage off of the PCT, mm -hmm. and that's an individual patent filing in that that particular country. So it makes it's a good business decision to know exactly which countries you know because you don't want to just blanket everyone if you don't even know there's a market there yet. Correct. I mean, you could, but mm -hmm. it's you know what I generally tell people is the cost um, is generally about five thousand per country just to file. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're looking at 183 countries at 5,000 yeah. each, we're, you know, we're getting into astronomical figures and that's going to break anybody's IP budget. And, and that's just talking about just the filings, let alone future office actions, you know, anything that could come up afterward. Correct. Um, you mentioned that the PCT also allows you to have like a mini prosecution before you go to, you know, you can pick what countries you want to file in. What's the value of that if, if for a practitioner standpoint or from a company standpoint, what's the value in doing that mini prosecution prior to, to picking out what countries? Well, you know, one, there's a cost savings in a lot of countries um, where they will actually take the examination of the PCT and just validate it and give you a patent if you had a favorable outcome in that PCT prosecution. Hmm. So, you know, that's very helpful there. You get it. Um, without any extra money and you you know that your claims are already essentially the same everywhere that you file. So some countries just kind of say, oh, okay, I'm, I see you did some work and you prosecuted and you verified this is patentable. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to take your word for it. And that way we don't have to worry and do that work. Yeah, you know, and it's a lot of the smaller countries. Um, mm -hmm. The one that I'm most familiar with, of course, is Singapore, mm -hmm. um, where they have the option of if you had a favorable report um off of PCT and you come into Singapore, you can get a patent granted in six months because they'll look at that and say, okay, the claims are allowable here by um, in the PCT, so we're just going to allow them to issue into a patent. So you did mention um, briefly about the costs involved of going into the national stage for you know the countries that you pick. What are the initial costs of getting the patent together and getting it into the PCT system? Well, you know, you, first you're going to draft the application, which depending on the product can be anywhere mm -hmm. from 5,000 to probably somewhere between 15 to 20,000 um, to, to generate that Just first Just to draft application. it, yeah. Um, then you're going to have um, filing fees of probably between $1,000 and $2,000 in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, for that first filing, if it's a utility. If it's a provisional, I think it's two fifty now. Okay, yeah, I think so, yeah. Um, they keep raising it every yeah, year. Yeah, they keep raising it, and, <laughs> and that's, I didn't look at the two seven, uh, 2017 or 2018 guide, um, so I, I don't know the exact, yeah. it's somewhere around two fifty. Um, then you're at, that 12 months out, you're going to have to file PCT, and the filing fees for that are typically somewhere between three and five thousand mm -hmm. um, dollars, and that's just the filing fees. There might be a little extra work that you do at that point to, mm -hmm. um, you know, change the claims a little because um, we you might have some very U.S. specific claims, um, for example, software claims in the U.S. Typically, that style of claim won't be allowed anywhere else in the world. So if you only have those in the application, you have to kind of amend them and work it around so that um, the claims are patentable subject matter in these other jurisdictions. So that's one of the things as a business owner, um, you're, you're dealing with your 
IP counsel, you know, one of the IP counsel's jobs is to take that and draft that invention, not just for the U.S., but kind of like, okay, we have to put certain elements and things in and maybe massage the, the formatting around to make sure that it's going to comply with these countries that you're going to be interested in. Correct. I, and I mean, the good thing is a lot of countries, there's generally mm -hmm. a line of countries, they all conform to a certain um, kind of group of laws. And so if you, you understand those laws, you're able to draft that application and put the information in to the PCT application so that when you come out into those individual countries, um, you aren't wasting an office action or an examination report um, cleaning up formalities of filing in that country. Mm -hmm. So I know you mentioned previously that you know, you've got 30 months to do the, before the national stage. There are, are some clients I've dealt with who would hear that and just totally lose their mind. They want a patent yesterday. What um, what do you, do you usually tell people the timelines that they're usually going to be dealing with if they're going to want to file something PCT? Well, you, the timelines, like I said, are typically you file first, then at a year um, you do your PCT, and then you can wait to 30 months. Um, you can at any time file from PCT and go national phase into any country. Mm -hmm. um, what it actually does is it severs that country's prosecution from the PCT case. So if you were actually doing prosecution in PCT and you decided, oh, we're making mm -hmm. it in Vietnam, for example, and now we know that the, our maker is manufacturing it for our competitor as well, so we want to get a patent there right away. We go ahead and file national stage in, mm -hmm. in Vietnam, and that cuts off um, the international at prosecution as to Vietnam. So, but then you could still wait longer for the other countries. Yes. It's just you're just cutting it off because you have a reason. That's a very a very good reason that you want to cut it off quickly and get get some sort of expedited answer so you can go after potential infringers. Yeah, I mean, you know, what we're always telling you is typically the maximum of how much time you have, but you can always yeah. do it earlier. And you know, there are some times where it does make sense to go earlier. I typically will caution a client not to mm -hmm. unless there is some um, infringement issue because they just don't know where the markets are yet and they're going to end up wasting money um, that they could be using to file in countries that they need it or to develop more IP um, if they don't, you know, if they try and do this all at once and get patents everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So switching now to kind of more of a, a new attorney uh, law student standpoint who might be interested in this topic, the how long would you say, in your opinion, does it take to be kind of competent in handling foreign filings? Well, really, you don't need to be that competent to handle them. <laughs> um, the good thing is in most countries you have to get representation in that country to file for you. So that means you're going to have a foreign associate who knows the laws of those countries filing it for you and reporting back to you and kind of running the prosecution for you. So and, and let's um, let's explore that a little bit more because I think that's also an interesting thing that you know a lot of even cl you know clients may not know because they're dealing you know you're basically the point of contact for your IP as your their counsel. 
But in reality, when they're doing a PCT, and you know, because you've got to go through the prosecution process in every country, if they want to file patents in 20 countries, they've got 20 prosecution processes and 20 sets of rules that need to be followed. And obviously, as a as yep. a U.S. attorney, you're not going to know, and you can't, you know, possibly know every single rule. So it makes sense to have foreign associates. That, yeah, I, and I mean the the one thing is you've got to you become. I think it does take you some time to learn what the foreign associates mm -hmm. are looking for from you. Um, you know, because they they're used to their own rules and they will explain things to you as mm -hmm. best they can. But sometimes their con understanding of patent law doesn't quite match up with U.S. Pro prosecution, and you're asking what what is this um, attorney looking for? So do you get, um, and, and you've got some, you know, much more experience with dealing with foreign associates than I know I do, do you get a lot of times where you're dealing with foreign associates from one country or one company that maybe like, you know, you have to kind of, I don't know the right phrase, kind of be more hands-on with or teach them more and or tell them what to do more versus others, you know, you're dealing yeah. and it's just an automatic kind of thing. I mean, what you have to remember is, the U.S. and South Africa are the only two countries that require patent attorneys to have an engineering degree. Hmm. So in a lot of other countries, you're dealing with normal lawyers that have specialized in IP, and they may not have a technical background. So while they may know the law in and out, they don't understand the underlying technology. So a lot of times they'll be asking you to provide that technical expertise. Um, that they don't have. The other thing is, if there's a, a technical question that the examiner has raised, they may not be able to answer it. So <laughs> um, it'll come back to you and you're gonna have to resolve it. Um, you know, and then it becomes not only sometimes a language barrier, but a technology barrier because- Oh, that's a double whammy. <laughs> because yeah, the, the attorney oftentimes won't quite know how to phrase the question to get mm -hmm. the information that he needs. Um, you'll kind of, as you start patent, working in other countries and working with certain um, agents, you'll kind of pick up what they don't understand yeah. and what they need. But um, those first couple of times, you, it'll take a couple of rounds with them to get them the information that they need to answer that question for an examiner. <laughs> so dealing with the, the foreign associates, I'll, I'm sure there are differences in quality between different foreign associates. Do you find have you found that to be the case? Um, yes, I mean it, it's like anything else yeah. in life. Um, all everybody has different skill sets and different abilities. Um, you know, you want to find one that that you personally work good with. Um, you know, I tend to like the guys that are a little more technical and understand the industry that I'm in because they'll mm -hmm. be able to to ask me the right questions because they've just seen a lot more of it. Um, but, you know, sometimes you don't have that choice. You go into a country <laughs> where you don't know anybody. Um, so you're just taking, um, you know, either recommendations from a colleague or, you know, you're just cold calling. Um, so if you're working in a firm, you know, typically they have their own, you know, there's like a foreign associate for each country for the firm. Um, do you ever, have you ever gotten to a position where you just, you, you know, you had to go out and find a foreign associate in short order in a different country? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, there's been a couple of times where we've had to kind of scramble because we'll have a new client mm -hmm. and we approach um, the agent that we always use and they're like, well, we're conflicted out. Oh. Um, so then what do you do? You know, you, you've got to run and find somebody else. <laughs> and, you know, if you're butting up against a deadline, it it's pretty worrisome because you end up... Uh, you know, calling everybody you know, doing internet searches, anything. That and that's and that's how you find Fortis. It's no, there's no like clearinghouse. It's just kind of like, hey, let's just do an internet search and see if we could find somebody. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been fortunate because I, I've now, you know, I've got 20 years of experience and I've got enough contacts <laughs> in enough places that I can typically find somebody that somebody has worked with. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, before that it, and before the internet, it was oh, even worse. We I, were just... We would literally go and call the patent office and get a list of registered attorneys in that that country. And wow, you know that was the way you did it back then. Now with the internet, mm. at least you can kind of see what their firm represents if they have a web page. If they have a web page, you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it it can be worrisome, and it can be you know sometimes you're just throw, rolling the dice, hoping that you pick somebody good. <laughs> So it's, it seems like that's a good wealth of knowledge to have is a good cachet of, you know, foreign associates you can call on if need be if you're doing a lot of foreign filings. As an attorney, can you specialize in just working with foreign filings? I mean, I, I understand like there might you might be like an in-house at a company that, you know, you know is going to be doing you know, business in just one country for the most part, and you can specialize in kind of working in that, that well, system. There are firms here in the U.S. that, all they do are take um, patents from other countries and um, file them national phase PCT here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's one I can think of in LA, um, and I can't remember the name of them, but they only do work for uh, Panasonic. <laughs> and, you know, they'll file thousands of mm -hmm. patents a year in the US, but all they're doing is taking the PCT applications from Panasonic and mm -hmm filing them here and then reporting back to Panasonic and getting the, the directions to prosecute. So being a young attorney looking into the, in these foreign flags, where would you typically tell someone to look for if they want to learn more about, you know, how the foreign filing system works? Um, you know, the good part is the MPEP itself has the whole section on PCT. And my recommendation would be to learn PCT first. Um, that's going to be a good introduction into how other prosecution a, goes in other offices. So learning PCT as opposed to like the Paris Convention or just like or another directly, yeah. Um, you know, because again, it it the whole intent of the PCT is to make it to where the coming out of that prosecution it would blend good into the national phase um, prosecution mm -hmm. of those patents. So they've tried to. To make the rules conform to most countries. Mm -hmm. So by learning that as a first step, you're at least going to see, well, here's kind of the difference from the rest of the world to the U.S. Gotcha. So you've got a one like point of reference. You can kind of learn the differences from that versus trying to learn just the differences from the U.S. compared to everybody else. Yes. Okay. And, you know, then, then after that, you know, the other thing is, is you evolve and you actually work cases through the PCT and they get foreign filed you'll be familiar with them and then you can kind of see how the the national law in a particular country is different from the PCT prosecution 
and you'll you'll start seeing the differences there and that'll that'll help you a lot being that you've had so much experience in the field of foreign filings do you have any like uh horror stories or any kind of incidents that you can share just like just like something uh, an interesting case that uh might be of interest to somebody listening well i can uh the most interesting one that I, I've ever had was actually while I was working in Singapore. And we had a client that came into us that morning at 9 a.m. and told us they were doing a presentation at um, a national university at 1 p.m. <laughs> and they needed to file that day. I didn't have the time, but knowing the way the world works, I filed it in the U.S. Oh, because, before, because you can do it digitally, right? Yeah. So I did a digital <laughs> online filing and I got it filed the day before in the U.S. Wow. Um, but that was, I mean, that that's one of these things, understanding the rules and kind of understanding the way the world works in general. You're like, well, I'm not totally shot. I can buy myself an extra 12 hours if I file in the U.S. Yeah. And so we filed <laughs> just about noon, an hour before just to make sure that we were ahead of their yeah. presentation if it ever gets into to litigation. Mm-hmm. But we filed it in the U.S. as opposed to filing it with um, IPOS or, um, or PCT. Wow. That's very clever. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Um, do you want to tell us anything about you and your firm? Well, I mean, I, I'm currently at uh, Klein, Sing & O'Neill here in Irvine, California. Um, we do a lot of work with startups and with um, a lot of mid-size um, electronics companies. Um, you know, we, we are a full-service patent prosecution firm. Um, we also do some trademarks and some litigation, but um, my practice, um, as it always has been and always will be, is focused on patent prosecution. I just, I love it. And, like I said, I think I do bring a, a unique perspective to people because I, I do know the foreign um, prosecution pretty well. And it I can actually help more mid-sized companies that are a little more mature and, you know, now really need to start looking at, at IP worldwide. Um, I can usually help guide them and get that set up to where they have a functional program. Okay. Thank you again to William Wilbar of Klein, O'Neill & Singh for sitting down with me this episode. You can find Will at koslaw.com. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening and checking out the podcast. If you've liked what you've heard so far, feel free to subscribe and check us out next month. Until then, you can also follow us on Twitter at IPGURUS, on Facebook and YouTube by searching IP space GURUS, and of course, as always, on the web at www.ipgurus.com. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the IP Gurus podcast. All discussions presented are for informational purposes only and are not meant to create an attorney-client relationship. If you'd like to pursue an attorney-client relationship, give us a call at 1-844-IP-GURUS. Thanks for listening.